It's great to be back with you today as we look at our second sermon in the book of Chronicles. And today I want us to start thinking about the difference between what and how. The difference between what and how. So, for instance, what needs to be done in Tasmania is that we need to control inflation, we need to improve education, and we need to fix the traffic through Hobart. That's, that's the what of what needs to happen. But how is that to be done? That's the question that we often discuss, isn't it? That's brought up in the media and in the newspaper and uh, amongst our politicians. So you, I hope you can see that there's a difference between what and how. Uh, so for us as Christians, but the what question might be, what are we supposed to be doing as a church? You know, who, who is it that we are and what are we supposed to be doing? And then the question naturally flows, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Uh, you're visiting and it's great to have you here. Maybe you've got your own what question. Your own what question. And that is, you know, what is it about God? What is it that I'm supposed to know about God? How am I supposed to think about God? And that's going to have its own how question for you as well, isn't it? As to how you should respond, how you should proceed from here. Well, the book of Chronicles is answering a what and how question. Last week, we looked at chapters 1 to 9 of the book of Chronicles. And the book of Chronicles is the, uh, as, as I put forward last week, most likely the last book written in the Bible before the coming of Jesus. So it's the last book written before the coming of Jesus. And the Jews had just returned from Babylon, where they had been sent by God in what was called the exile. And now they've come back <clears throat> and they've been asking the question as to what are we supposed to be doing? Who are we? And the genealogies showed that they had a special connection in God's plans and purposes with this world. It authenticated them in their mission and that their mission for them to be God's chosen people to the world still remained and that they had a role to speak on God's behalf to the world. But the question now is, how are they going to do it? So what is Israel? Israel was that chosen nation to speak to the world, but how is it going to be done? And for the second part of the book of 1 Chronicles, so this is chapters 10 to the end of the book, uh, which, is, uh, chapters, uh, which is 19 chapters, it's a, a big section, Chronicles is going to tell them that how they are going to do it is through the coming of the Messiah and the temple. It's going to be through the Messiah and the temple. That's how Israel will represent itself to the world. And the way it's going to do it is it's going to give us a history lesson. We had a whole lot of that read out for us before, didn't we? The history of David taking Jerusalem, David and his sin and where the temple would be built, uh, David and the appointing of his son to build the temple. And so what Chronicles does is it, it tells us about the past and in telling us the history of who the king is and how the, Messiah's, uh, how the temple's going to be built, it's telling us about the truth of those things. It's giving us 
the history lesson behind them so that we can understand what God has done and from that, what we're to expect for the future. So it's spelling out what God had done in the past and saying, this is how you're going to speak to the world through what God set up. And so I'm going to now give a, a brief summary of chapters uh, 10 to 29 as we look at what we learned about the Messiah and the temple. So first of all, I want to define this word Messiah. We're going to see this a few times, and we saw it already in the reading, that uh, the word Messiah actually is a Hebrew, a Hebrew word which means anointed. And so when we read about David being anointed king or Saul being anointed as king, as we do in the scriptures, that's actually the word Messiah. And so they are the anointed king or the Messiah king. And chapter 10 begins by telling us the first Messiah king, that of Saul, King Saul, who is the shepherd of God's people. But as we read, it only gives us one chapter on Saul, so it's very brief. But things don't go well with Saul. And this is how the story of Saul concludes in verses 13 and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. So this is the first thing we see here, that Saul did not lead God's people the way that a Messiah king as a leader of God's people should. He didn't lead God's people in worship. And in fact, we're told here, rather than keeping the word of God, he turned aside to occult practices for guidance. Saul didn't look, uh, listen to the word of God. He didn't shepherd God's people through the word of God, but looked to other places. Now, we all sin in many ways. We all have our own individual sins. But if you are a leader amongst God's people, your primary role is to shepherd them through the word of God. That is how the, the, the leaders of God's people are to shepherd God's people. You're certainly not to turn them away from the word of God. And you can imagine when the king is consulting the occult practices like witches, what effect that has on the people when they know what the king is doing. I know he tries to do it quietly and everything, but he's not seeking the word of God. And as a result, he is rejected by God. So this is the first lesson that's put forward to us, that the, the Messiah King who the Jews are expecting, he's going to be someone who, who is for the word of God, who is leading God's people in the word of God, who shepherds God's people in the word of God. And this is what we see with David as we uh, now move into the life of David. In chapter three, sorry, chapter 11, verse 3, we read, When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, he made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed, that's that word Messiah again, they anointed David king over Israel. So here we see David now. We've had Saul, who's not what a Messiah should be like. Now we're introduced to David and we're going to see that 
he's very different. Now, the first thing he does, as we saw, was that he goes and conquers Jerusalem. Jebus is the city, as it's called, but uh, David and all the Israelites march to Jerusalem. That is Jebus. And David conquers this city and he makes it his capital. That is, the capital city for God's people is Jerusalem. It's not Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans are around now when the book of Chronicles is being written. But we're told that Jerusalem is the capital city. And it's because of David's conquest here that you read about Jerusalem so much in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that when you're reading in the book of the prophets, when you're reading in the Psalms, when you're reading in the book of, of Jesus' life or in the book of Revelation? It, it's all around Jerusalem in one way or another, isn't it? It's because of David. It's because of this messianic king. This is why Jerusalem is so important. But it also means something else. It means there's a new city now in the world. There's a new city in the world. There is Babylon and all that goes with Babylon and its hostility to God. There is Athens. But now there's Jerusalem, the city of God. The Messianic king establishes the center, the capital city of the kingdom of God. There's a new city in this world. Now, David's story continues. We read about the, the soldiers who come to him, uh, soldiers throughout Israel and the nations of the world. Um, all of Israel, as we've already seen, acknowledge David as king. He establishes the kingdom through uh, victories and he sets up a proper government. And so you read about the people who are his scribes and his secretaries and his ambassadors. And we're told about that as Israel now becomes a full-fledged nation. It's moved from just being um, uh, judges of, of an association of tribes to now being this kingdom. Uh, nations around him are subdued. But have a look at chapter 14, verse 2. And we'll see that God is doing this through David for a particular reason. Chapter 14, verse 2. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his king, kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people. This is another thing we learn about the Messiah, isn't it? That God exalts his messianic king, not just for the king's sake, but as God deals with the king and raises up the king, he raises up and blesses his people. And so what happens for the Messiah King is how God works for his people and saves his people. Now, the next thing we see is that David tries to bring the tabernacle into Jerusalem. Now, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a special type of tent structure in which God came down and dwelt with his people. It was a special structure because as sinful people, we just can't come into the presence of God. God is holy and sinners can't come into God's presence. If we as sinners come before a holy God, we're struck dead because of our sin and unworthiness. And so God made the tabernacle under Moses, which is like a series of tents, tents within tents. And God himself, his presence dwelt in the center of it. And people could approach God to worship, but they had to do it through sacrifice and for their sins to be paid for. But they could approach 
God and God would dwell with his people through this tabernacle. Now, David wants to move the tabernacle and bring it into Jerusalem. The first time he does it, he doesn't get the Levites, who were the tribe appointed by Moses to carry it, and, and, and so it ends in disaster and he can't bring it in. And so next time he does it the proper way according to what Moses commanded and he's able to bring the tabernacle in. He sets it up and then we see this beautiful time where David leads God's people in worship. This is chapter 16, verse 7. That day David uh, first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. And then there's a, a big psalm there that David gives. But we see here that David is the king who brings the place where God and man meet together. He brings it into the capital city and then he, he himself leads God's people in worship. Now, why is, God, uh, why is David doing this? Why does David want to bring the, the tabernacle into the capital city? Well, it's because he wants God at the centre of their life. He wants God pe God's people to have at the centre of their life God and the worship of God. He wants the, the word of God to be there, but he wants the worship of God to be at the centre of the kingdom of God and at the centre of God's people's life. Now, I want to ask you, well, what is at the centre of your life? What is at the centre of your life? Is, is it the word of God and the worship of God? Because this is what is meant to be at the centre of our lives. We're meant to have the worship of God, the serving of God at the centre of our lives. And this is what David demonstrates to us. We're not to go worshipping other things, be it our, our careers or our holidays or our families. They're all great gifts from God. But our first love, our first worship is to be the Lord God, our creator and our, <coughs> our saviour. I just want you to imagine if our leaders actually did this. How different would Tasmania be if our premier led the state in the worship of God? It would actually have a massive effect, wouldn't it? Because you can read these stories in the Bible and just think, oh yeah, David went up and he led the nation in the worship of God. It actually has a massive effect. Imagine if our prime minister's first act was to go and worship God. That would have a big effect on the community, wouldn't it? Just as Saul turned aside to the occult and led God's people astray, when David establishes as his first priority the worship of God, that has a big effect on God's people. Now, we can do that in our own small ways, can't we? And so the people that, that, that you associate with, as you display to them the worship of God, that's a witness to them. That's a witness to them. Your life matters. The way you live matters and is a witness to those around you. And of course, when the, the Messianic king does it, it matters even more so. So this is what the future will be like. As, as the Jews have come back from exile 
and they're, they're looking back at their past and they're, they're being taught about what was the key elements of the past that we need to know for the future, they're being told we should expect a Messiah who leads God's people in worship, who leads them in, with the word of God. Now, in time, David wants to build a temple. And so David's significant because here's the shift from God's meeting place with people being a tabernacle, a tent, to now being a temple. And so we see this in chapter 17 as we work our way through. After David had settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. And so David decides to build a temple for God. But then look in verse 4, look at what happens. This is just a few verses later. Nathan comes back and says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, you are not the one to build a house for me to dwell in. Sometimes God says, no. Even to godly King David, God says no. You know, sometimes God says no in our life, doesn't he? And that's his prerogative. He is God. Sometimes we complain when God says no. And it certainly can be frustrating. But God is God and sometimes God says no. Now, what does David do when God says no to him? He accepts it. Unlike King Saul, when God said no to King Saul, he didn't accept it. He just took another path. But David accepted God's decision. Now, the reason why David does not qualify to build the temple, we see in our reading from chapter 22, verse 8. 22, verse 8. But this word of the Lord came to me, this is David speaking, this word of the Lord came to me, you have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. So the reason why David is not to build the temple of the Lord is that he is a man of blood. I just want to point out how honest and real the Bible is here. It's saying to David, you're too violent. And if you go and read David's stories, he's pretty violent. One of the criticisms that comes against the Bible is that it gives, you know, it has these warfares in it and commands to kill on occasions. But looking at this, we can see the Bible does not give unqualified approval to warfare or violence. It does not give unqualified approval to this type of behaviour. And when it comes to building the, the temple of the Lord, David is not able to do it. And so it's not David. We're going to see who it is soon. But David does get ready for the, the preparations for the building of the temple. And so there's a, as we had in our reading, there's a particular time when he sins against the Lord and he offers up a sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath. And it's that spot 
that spot of atonement where the sacrifice was made and God's wrath was turned aside where the temple's going to be built. He makes preparations with gold and silver and iron and wood and stone. He sets up the, the musicians. He sets up all the musicians to be singing and, and uh, in their orders. But what we see here also is that David is changing the way that God dwells with his people. And this is actually a big deal because it was Moses who set up the tabernacle. And who is David to change how God dwells with his people? We, we mustn't just read this and say, oh yeah, they made a temple. Moses set up the tabernacle. Who, is, who are you to change that? In fact, what we actually see in 1 Chronicles 23, verses 25 and 26, is that David makes some of the Levites who had to carry around the, the tabernacle because the tabernacle would move around. There were people who were set apart for its transport. They were made unemployed by David. David actually made them unemployed. So the people that Moses had set up to do work, David made unemployed. David changes, here is the messianic king, changing how God dwells with his people. Now, how can he do that? Well, it's because David, we are told in Chronicles, is a prophet like Moses. David is a prophet like Moses. The Messiah is a prophet like Moses. Look at chapter 28, verse 11. <clears throat> Um, then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its building, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave, them, he gave the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the Lord in the temple and all the surrounding rooms and the treasuries of the temple and for the treasuries of the dedicated things. And then across in... Uh, verse, uh, verse 19, all this, David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me and he gave me understanding in all the details of the plan. Now that's the way that Moses is described as giving the plans for the tabernacle. And so we, hear, so we see here that David is a prophet like Moses. And we're starting to see something about the Messiah here, that the Messiah is the one who brings God and man together. Because when you're a temple builder, when you bring the plans and you start to get the temple going, what are you doing? You're actually bringing a holy God and a sinful humanity together. And so we see that one of the roles of the Messiah is going to be that he brings God and humanity together. He's the temple builder. So let's start to, to summarize uh, Chronicles before we move on to Jesus. Well, what is the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel is God's chosen nation that has a mission to speak to the world. How are they going to do this? They're going to do this through their messianic king, their messiah king, centered around Jerusalem, and this king is going to be the one who brings the temple, brings the new way of God dwelling with his people. And it's through this 
that they will speak to the world. Now, the last question, of course, is, you know, we've looked at what, we've looked at how. The question now is who? <laughs> Who's going to do this? We've seen that it's not David. He's a man of blood. What about Solomon? He's the, the one who comes along here. He's the son after David, and we're actually told that he will build the temple. And so with Solomon, we see that, yes, he is the messianic king who will build the temple, but also, no. Yes and no with David, uh, with Solomon. Solomon does build this temple, but Solomon also seed, sows the seeds of its destruction as he turns away from God. And as we follow through the rest of Chronicles, we go through all these other kings, we see that the temple ends up being destroyed. And this is actually the context that the Jews find themselves in as this book is being written, that they're waiting for the proper temple to come. They're waiting for the proper Messiah to come. And so David's not the true temple builder. Solomon's not the true temple builder. The temple's been destroyed. We're waiting for the new temple who is this Messiah who's going to build, come and build the temple? Who is the Messiah who's going to come and bring the holy God and sinful humanity together? Well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who comes and fulfills this messianic expectations. Because when Jesus comes, he comes doing what a Messiah should do, and that is talking about the temple. So when Jesus comes in, uh, in Matthew 12, he talks about uh, being greater than the temple. And then in uh, John 2, let me just read you from John 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in Jerusalem and, in, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, Jesus comes as the Messiah to build the temple because that's what the Messiah is meant to do, isn't he? The Messiah, as we've seen, is the one who can change how God dwells with his people. And Jesus comes as the Messiah to bring a new way that God dwells with these people. And the way that God dwells with these people now is through the resurrected body of Jesus. It's a little strange, isn't it, that Jesus' body is the temple. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that in Jesus, God and humanity perfectly dwell together. This is what we mean by the doctrine of the incarnation. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. What we mean is that God and humanity now dwell perfectly together. And as we join ourselves to Christ, as we put our faith in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit are joined to Jesus, we now have perfect union with God. This is the fulfillment of the book of Chronicles. Jesus is that perfect temple. He brings about a new way, as the Messiah can do, as we've seen. He brings a new way, not of, of stones and bricks and mortar, 
but of a physical body in which God and man dwell perfectly together. Jesus is the Messiah, the prophet like Moses, bringing the new way that God and humanity dwell. As we read the gospel, we see that Jesus leads God's people in worship. The psalm that is most often quoted in the New Testament, I believe, is Psalm 22. And that's all about the Messiah leading God's people in worship. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with the Messiah leading God's people in worship and this being proclaimed to the world. And this is what Jesus does. He is the true worshipper. The true worshipper who comes as our representative, giving the true worship and honour to his Father on our behalf. He brings the kingdom of God, and it's not just any kingdom of God, it's the resurrection kingdom of God. The the world began through one man and through that life of that man. Now Jesus brings the resurrection kingdom of God through this one man, Jesus. And we have our own role to play in this. It's interesting how the the New Testament actually picks up some of the language um, from Chronicles. You may remember in Chronicles that it talks about David building with uh, gold, silver, Uh, precious stones and and all those types of things and it's interesting how the apostles when they talk about their ministry they they use similar language in the book of chronicles and they say by the grace god has given me i laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it but each one should be careful how he builds this is building the church for for no one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid which is jesus christ If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the quality of each man's work will be seen for what it is. It's interesting how what David did in providing for the building of the temple is now picked up in a way by the apostles as they build the church, as they join people into Jesus and and that's really our work as a church now Jesus has come and has has established the true temple he is the true messianic king and we're involved in this work in building upon him the church of God and we do this through our our own efforts through the gifts that God has given us um, through the gold, silver, uh, wood, hay, all these things, the different gifts that God's given us, which we, we could look at at another time. But to conclude, we've seen that uh, this section of Chronicles is answering the how question. The how question, and it shows us that how God is acting in this world is through the, the true temple that he has built, through the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true message that God has for this world, that God and humanity can come together, the holy God and a sinful humanity can come together through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through the way that he brings us to God. Amen.